All right. Um, now that we've kind of talked about the Russian-Ukrainian situation, I want to spend a little bit more time discussing the new rules for war, which came out in 2019. Yes. And I think you had a really nice forward from your your old mentor, General Stanley McChrystal. Yep. So let's let's start with uh, what are the new rules for war? Uh, what's different about them than the way we looked at things in the past, at least from a Cold War and a pre pre Cold War perspective? And then what's yeah. the same? There's some there's some kind of back to the past or you know yes. element of it. Um, yep. But I don't I want to steal your thunder. So again, starting. No, it's it's war. good. So this this book called The New Rules of War. Um, it was a kind of a long time in the making. I mean, I wrote it very quickly, but it, would, it had been gestating for 10 years. And um, and the reason is, is that, you know, like probably many of your listeners, I knew people, friends of mine got killed in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, as a taxpayer, it was disgusting to see you know, billions of dollars, trillions of dollars spent in these places that just went up in smoke, you know? Um, and then as a vet, it was hateful to, to see like our country was yet again being like somehow outsmarted by idiotic foes. I mean, it's like North, it's like Vietnam. I mean, in Iraq and Afghanistan, guys with, you know, you know, Kalashnikov AK-47s driving Hilux trucks and flip-flops and, you know, how come, you know, and, and then, you know, I was like, but we have the best military in the world. I mean, even our, even our adversaries know that even like Putin and Xi Jinping, even, you know, Osama bin Laden knows that, um, you know, so what's the problem? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, when do you think the last time we won a big war was? Korea. And that's, well, that's a stalemate, right? Yeah. That's a big F the Chinese would say that they won. <laughs> well, the Chinese say a lot of things. <laughs> Don't they would say they, they won in Vietnam. They would, so they would say those are authentic DVDs in my, uh, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, if, if we're really honest, the last time we won a big war was 1945. Right. And so the, the book, that's the question of the book that started me on this journey. It's like, if we're the best military in the world, everybody says we do. It's not just us imagining it. Why haven't we won a war in 70 years? What's the problem? And the problem, bottom line up front, is this, is that warfare has passed us by. We have stood still. Warfare has evolved in many ways. Our adversaries get it, like Russia and China and Iran and others. But we have like remained stuck in the past because we have something called victor's curse, which is like, we are the top dog. So why do we have to evolve the way we fight? Everybody should, you know, evolve to, to us because we're the best of the best of the best, you know, like men in black, you know? And the truth is, is that, you know, over the last couple of decades, if not much more, uh, you know, weaker powers have grown strong by changing the way they think about war. And that, and that is what I kind of dissect and I distill into 10 new rules or principles of how to fight and win modern wars. Now, you know, it's being read widely in not just the United States, national security circles, but in the United Kingdom and Western Europe and the Pacific Rim. You know, traditionalists want to burn, you know, burn me at the stake. 
And, uh, but there's a lot of people who are like, that is right on. And that's what we should be doing more of. So the book has become a bit of a, a lightning rod, a focal point, a, a point of conversation. And that's what I wrote it for. I wrote it to, it's, it's, it's a very readable book. It's not like an academic tome. I wrote it to be read. I wrote it to start conversations and not end them. But it's about how we need to change the way we think and fight war so we don't get, we don't get dusted uh, which arguably, you know, Putin and Xi Jinping and others have been doing to us the last years. So what would your recommendation be for the U.S. to adopt this you know, new way of war? I mean, do we hire more mercenaries? Do we, you know? <laughs> well, we don't hire more mercenaries. Uh, we're seeing the rise of mercenaries ever. And that's one of the rules, actually. There's 10 rules. One of this number six is that mercenaries are rising everywhere and they change warfare because they privatize war, you know, they commodify it. But basically it's this, is that we are, our, most of our generals and, you know, diplomats and others are kind of stuck in the 1980s. They think that the way you win war is, first of all, war is the failure of peace. So the norm is you have peace. And then when it fails, you declare war, you do things in war ethic, you know, unethically that you would never do in peace. And then when, when that's done, you go back and sign a treaty of peace and you get on with normal relations. And that's what we're seeing today with Ukraine. You know, like Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, wants to, you know, diplomacy must save us from war and stuff. But that's not how, for example, our adversaries view it. They don't view it as war or peace. It's war and peace for them, right? We have this binary of war or peace as if it's like something in the late 19th century. But in truth, it's like there's no such thing. And and what, for example, China is doing to us, you know, look at the South China Sea. You know, how is it that, you know, they for in the old rules of war, which is conventional warfare, World War II style warfare, or even the Cold War to some extent. We, 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 if we, when we want to get China or the Soviets out of some place, we deploy carrier groups to show them that we need business. We've been deploying carrier groups in the South China Sea for 10 years. It hasn't stopped them at all from expanding in the South China Sea. And they don't even have aircraft carriers until very recently. Right? So here's, here's a provocative statement. Yeah. Why haven't yeah. we just, you know, nuke them? Those, no, just blown one of those islands out of the water and said, and to say, so, yeah, why not? Yeah. Look, so look, if it's you, very provocative, there's a nuclear. No, it's not there. provocative. If you if you sit and have drinks with admirals, Navy, U.S. Navy admirals, as I have, they will tell you this. They will say, hey, look, if you give us the green light, we will take care of the South China Sea in one afternoon, one afternoon. Now. And that's true. I mean, publicly, the Navy is like, oh, we need more ships. And but in reality, in my opinion, that's bureauc those are bureaucrats looking for more money. Right. So they hype up the threat. It's the same old, same old. This, the CIA was doing this in 1989 as the Berlin Wall was falling, right? The Soviets have never been more powerful. And oh, is that the is that the Berlin Wall falling? Don't pay no attention. Um, and uh, but that but in truth, like the Navy, our Navy, I mean the 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 Chinese military is not as tough as people portray it, and we are much stronger than is publicly known. And I believe that 
you know, unless we did some terrible miscalculation or some strategic faux pas, we'd clean the floor with their heads on it. Um, you know, Speaking but yeah. Of Chinese military performance, we actually got to see oh. some of it in the mm-hmm. Himalayas. Oh, did you? Was it cold? No, no, no. In terms of, in terms of, there was a, hmm. there was that recent, but again, it's part of what you're talking about, this kind of gray yeah. zone warfare where yeah. they steadily creep right. south, you know, toward India. But, you know, there was right. a, again, it was all hand to hand. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty brutal and short ex- experience, um, China favoring China. But the Indian Army is not the U.S. military, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we have to be careful about this. But yes, you're right. I mean, um, so what, what we're seeing, that what, what China is, the way that they're getting the South China Sea is that they're leveraging, they're doing, um, we are paradigm prisoners of a type of warfare that goes back to the 1940s, World War II. And it has a war and has peace. And they know there's no such thing as war or peace, it's war and peace. So what they do is they get up right in between that space, between war or peace. And, you know, they go right up they play a game of chicken and go right up to where we would flip that light switch for that admiral to blow the crap out of all those artificial islands in the South China Sea, you know, in one afternoon. And, but they stop right before you flip that light switch, right before we go from peace to war, right before we go, you know, so, but they keep everything they collect. So every time they expand this, gradual incrementalism that's what's working they're doing a strategic jujitsu flip on our own strategic paradigm which is very sun Tzuian. you sun Tzu talks about that the primary strategy for anybody is to use the attack the enemy's strategy which makes no sense to western strategists like what do you mean attack the enemy's strategy in this case what it means is like look the the americans have a very laws of armed conflict, paradigm of strategy. You're either at peace, you're at war. So you attack that. You do things that are in between war and peace and you exploit that. You mess with them. And that's how they're doing it. So, you know, meanwhile, we keep on throwing in more attack hero groups. Like we learn nothing. Well, they're doing the same thing in, in Taiwan right now where they're just grinding down the capability and capacity of the Taiwanese Air Force right. to handle these sorties of what, 30, I think the latest was like 39 aircraft right. over. And at the end of the day, again, I'm being provocative, but why don't you just shoot a few of those things down and say stop? Or you just right. say, if we see another one of these sorties, we're going to shoot something down. You're yeah. moving. Well, the problem is if you're Taiwan, you're going to give China a complete pretext to invade your island. Oh, to be and clear, you don't want to, to be clear. What, I'm not saying Taiwan says that. Oh, I see. Yeah, but then the question is: Is the U.S. going to want to? You know, are we going to go to war in Ukraine? Are we going to go war in Taiwan? I mean, do the American people really want to do that? So, so here's the issue with Ukraine, with Taiwan that is not with Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I, I need to check this statistic, but uh, I think uh, Taiwan has like 90% of the semiconductor foundry capacity in the world. Mm-hmm. If China were to take Taiwan, we would absolutely, absolutely <clears throat> defend yeah. because we have to. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, I believe, I think, I think TSMC, which is the, you know, Taiwanese company that, that, 
makes these foundries is building something over in Arizona to, to kind of decouple that. But, you know, I think if, and, and I also don't think China is dumb enough to invade at this point in time for that reason. I think they know that mm -hmm. there's enough of a strategic um, vulnerability for us on that, that we absolutely would not be rational at that point because we right. you would have to, have to do something. But go ahead, I didn't mean to. No, I think, well, first of all, I, I, I want to be one of the few people in DC who says that taking Taiwan will not be as easy as everybody thinks it will be. Taiwan has been ready for this fight since 1949. They know it's a total war for them. It's a limited war for China. They, they've been preparing you know, an insurgency almost with dug-in positions and stuff like that for a very long time. Um, it's not like you know, China can just go in there and you know, hang up new drapes and you know, we should assume it's all over. Um, there may be a, a pretty good fight. I mean, I don't know what it'll look, if there's a fight, I'm not sure what it'll look like. Um, Isn't there but a demographic, I do demographic concern though? So, so for instance, there's, there's the kind of the Chiang Kai-shek descended elites who kind of yeah. run everything. And then there's the right. native population there. Is there, you know, is there, again, thinking from new rules of war, is there a way for somebody operating into the shadows to drive a wedge through to, you know, of course, the population. So <clears throat> there, there are, uh, but you know, the, the current president has been very popular and she's been very bellicose. Right. Um, but yeah, if you're, um, you know, so China has something called the three warfares and with the, th it's a strategy, it's called the strategy of three warfares. And what it is, it's, it's a, 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 an information or disinformation strategy. So you do things like you have state-controlled media like CCTV and stuff like that. Um, you use lawfare, which is using, you know, you undermine the international rules of law brazenly. So, um, you know, the Philippines sued uh, China of the, of the nine dash line, the South China Sea saying this is totally not their territory. It's, it's, it's been ours for a long time. And the um, you know international justice court said, yeah, you're right. Uh, try to get out of it. And China goes and like radically, just brazenly, just ignores it and justifies it. Um, and then they go after scholars uh, in Australia and others who push against them. They intimidate, they coerce them, intimidate them. So they use lawfare, and then they also do stuff like disinformation. I mean. They're not bad. I mean, Russia is the best at disinformation, but they get the silver medal. China gets the silver medal for disinformation. And they're I, doing I that. Thought we would get the silver medal for disinformation. Well, I wish we would. Maybe I'm maybe you're right. I hope I I, I hope that I you're I'm right. Not, I'm not I'm not again, I'm gonna step back. I'm not I'm not talking about domestic US politics. Sorry. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Well, I think I'm talking about outside of outside if of if we uh, I do agree, if we unleash the dark arts of our politicians and our adversaries, it'd be all done. <laughs> Right. But somehow when we do outward facing stuff, we become Puritans. It's really bizarre to me. I mean, all the dirty tricks in like Congress and political elections. I mean, can we weaponize that somehow? I mean, that's well, we, what we need uh, to don't do. we do things like, again, I'm just spitballing, but we report somebody dead and then they say, no, 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 no. I'm here here in Libya. Right. Actually, I read this. There's a book by Kadir Hamza, who's a Russian nuclear scientist or sorry. Iraqi nuclear scientist, and uh, 
somebody published a media report that he was dead and then he kind of rose his hand and and that's if you want to drone somebody that's a way you can kind of find you know them. we need more of that that's all i'm saying it's more of that <laughs> you know um you know so uh, yeah but i yeah i think you're right i mean charlie could certainly and is probably trying to do that but they're also doing a lot of this this bellicosts like flying jets over and mm -hmm. you know i i i do agree with you if you know one tactic was to, to shoot a few down you know and uh not by the taiwanese though right yeah but are we going to commit to a possible nuclear war with china etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but again that's the that's the old thinking right yeah right you take it if you're going to take it to the edge then you increase the cost of that and you know you don't you don't go crazy about it but you give a warning you say if you do x we will do y and then yeah. you if they do x we do y but you 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 make that you make the consequences limited enough that you're very clear about where it where it goes it's kind of this yeah you're drawing the red line sort of thing well here's the problem is that you know you're talking about classical deterrence, right? And that is the way in the 20th century we we thought and operated. I mean, deterrence was the main strategy of the Cold War of mutually assured destruction. And before that, if you think about all the maneuvering before World War One and so forth, it was all deterrence. If you do X, we'll do Y, with credibility and capacity behind our statement. And you know, that's the mystery of Putin today. He has credibility and capacity to do all the things he's starting to do in Ukraine, which is making us all jump rope. But if you look at it, like, is this deterrence work, or at least for America? Because, you know, China and Russia play by a different war play rule book. And I, I'm writing a new one for America, the new rules of war. So under the old rules of war, we do things like we're doing right now. And, it, you know, we send carrier groups to the South China Sea. It's not stopping China from taking on South China Sea. Our great military has not stopped, you know, Russia from taking Ukraine, from doing, you know, military operations in, you know, in, in Middle East or Africa. It's not stopping Iran from pursuing a bomb. So, you know, we do not understand how deterrence works right now. Now, the Pentagon knows this, but in the Pentagon's feeble way, what they've done is they've spent a year and a lot of man hours, like Pentagon man hours. So think of really expensive overpaid contractors from like Boozell and Hamilton and stuff like that, coming up with how do we deter in a 21st century? How do we fix this deterrence problem? Um, without doing like shooting down a, a Russian or a, a Chinese MiG. And they came up, well, in a very DOD manner, Department of Defense manner, they came up with a buzzword in lieu of a strategy called integrated deterrence. And this is the new hotness in town. And, but it's basically the same thing that we did in the Cold War. It's just like, it's like old wine, new bottles. You know, it's, it's more, um, it's the DC two step is really what it is. So what I would argue is that if you want to do deterrence, deterrence still works, but you've got to do it differently. War is getting sneakier. And that's what the new rules of war are really about. And you look at like Russia, China, Iran, 
you win now by getting sneaky, you go into the shadows, you, you wage war under the threshold of international media. Because once you have international media on your back, it makes it more hard to maneuver. And you'll see like, you know, Russia took Ukraine the first time in 2014 under a complete fog of war that they created. Yep. Libya today is a fog of war. On all sides, we don't know who's there and fighting and for what. We have mercenaries fighting mercenaries like the Middle Ages. We have different countries there. It's like, you know, Tatal oil sniffing around the edges. Yemen is sort of the same way. I mean, the, the, the message is in an information age, you have to wage war beneath the information threshold so that the people of the world don't know what's going on or don't care. They rather care about Kim Kardashian's dresses than warfare. So if you want to deter China and the South China Sea, you could you know, shoot down some, some Chinese jet fighters. That would get the message across. But then a lot of other factors creep in. The media factor. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the media factor. And they, they tend to escalate war for their own personal gain. It's very unethical. And they can't help themselves. Great. They're like the cookie monster in front of cookies. Right. Um, so they want to escalate war, which is, you know, very Klaus-Fitzian, actually. So what I suggest is you do deterrence in the shadows. What that means, for example, is if China says, you know, or Russia says those troops that we spotted, you know, someplace aren't really there, well, then who's going to miss them if we wipe them out? You know what I'm saying? If that... You know, if you have an aircraft wing on some island in the South China Sea that you're not saying those aircraft are not there, but we own that island, who's going to miss them if that wing is destroyed by five o'clock tomorrow morning? Um, <clears throat> similarly, we need, to, we need to fight, you know, in the future, victory goes to the cunning and not, the, not just the strong. And our old way of war is just strength. We want to be Goliath when we should be David. And so... You know, there's all sorts of sneaky things that we could be doing as well that we should consider doing. And that's kind of what the new rules of war are about. So, so as an example, again, citing that book, Relentless Strike by Sean Naylor, yeah. uh, I, I think toward the end of time in Iraq or Afghanistan, I, I can't remember which, but you had um, some of our you know, like Delta Force uh you know, kind of tier one organizations, they would kind of take out key people by creating, you know, IEDs that were right. designed using the same components that the Iranians used. And, you know, they would suddenly go kabloom and there would be right. no, no trace back. Same thing with, let's say in the South China Sea, let's say you want to, I guess, make China think twice about doing this. Right. Maybe you kind of have some, you know, mines that are like Filipino mines that are just so somewhere. This in is the deal. Living. Yeah. In an information age, we live in information age. Last thirty years, the next thirty years, there's no unless there's a nuclear apocalypse, we should think about warfare in information age because it changes everything. And you know, in an information age, false flag operations are a big deal, right? So no, we're dealing with non-attributional war. So one of the tricks of non-attributional war is that you try to pit two, two of your enemies against each other. 
you frame it up so that one seems to attack the other and vice versa. It's easy and you to do keep it in on cyber war, for instance. That's right, exactly. And all this shadow warfare stuff we have right now. Like, so if you can frame it, that is a that's a big stratagem that the United States National Security Committee, except there's a cult, there's a small sliver in the US who are willing to do this. But the vast majority of the national security establishment is like, no, that's beneath our dignity. We can't do that. And my question to them, do you want to be speaking, you know, Chinese in 30 years or not? I mean, uh, you know, what, what's the cost? Uh, and I hate to be so blunt about it, but that's really what's on the line. And I don't, I don't want to be direct, too direct about that, but there is, um, there is a, you know, one of my rules, the last rules is that at number 10 is that victory is fungible. And what this means is that there's many ways to win. It's not just on the battlefield. In fact, today, I think battlefield victory is largely obsolete. I mean, do we all remember 2003, mission accomplished, George W. Bush on an aircraft carrier. We achieved perfect battlefield victory over the Iraq military. It meant nothing for the war, you know? And that's because wars are not won and lost on battlefields anymore. They're won and lost elsewhere, like in people's minds with strategic deception, mis disinformation. And that's what, you know, great power competition is looking like today. So, you know, let me ask you a question. I mean, when was the last time you saw a movie with China as a villain in a Hollywood movie? Never. Never, right? No, isn't that odd? We have Russian villains. We have we have terrorist villains. You have American villains, CEOs they've and president villains. They've co-opted Hollywood. They've co-opted co some U.S. politicians. Right. Right. So they will stick to Hollywood. We'll stick, politics will leave aside. I, I, I don't disagree with you. Yeah, I'm not but saying they, which side. I'm not saying which yeah, side. I'm just saying. I think whatever side's easiest for them. But right. they look, China bought Hollywood legally. I mean, Legend Studios, it's, they own that in the way that they own Huawei. I mean, their companies are not free companies like here in the United States of America. I mean, we have trouble getting Apple to unlock an iPhone for a counterterrorism case in Los Angeles because I, you know, Apple doesn't want to lose market share in China. But, you know, Huawei is controlled by Beijing. If, if Beijing wants to replace the CEO of, Huawei, one text will do it. We don't operate that way. And so next time you see like a Hollywood movie, look in the, you know, the studio pre-credits, how many of those are like in Mandarin, you know? Um, you know, and it's, and even if they, even if you're like Sony Pictures, who doesn't want to sell out to Beijing, if you want to show your film in China, the second largest movie market in the world after North America, you have to submit your movie to censors. And Beijing censors will censor the heck out of it, right? I mean, we've seen, it's very expensive. Like I, I've, there's a, there's a, I don't know if it's true. I, I'm assuming it's true that in uh, Top Gun 2, um, um, what's his name? Uh, Cruz has uh, like an old fire bomber jacket with the old Taiwan flag on it. Beijing's like, get that out of there. And so Sony had to airbrush carefully at great expense every scene with that, you know, removing it. And that what that means is that if you are writing, like, just say you're writing a science fiction anthology on China, worth China. 
that will never make it to any green, like an editor, development editor in Hollywood because they don't want to deal with the wrath of China, right? China uses its market powers to, to coerce and to manipulate its own you know, strategic narrative of always being the good guy. So think about it, like movies like The Martian, who was the good guy, who saved the day? Chinese NASA. You have like Looper, the future is China. You have, you know, Mile 13, which actually pits America versus Russian spec ops. Spoiler alert, Russia wins a Chinese movie. And then there's a movie called Wolf Warrior and Wolf Warrior 2. Oh, have, you, I, sorry, yeah, where this have you heard Wolf Warrior 2? Have you seen yes. Wolf Warrior 2? I, I haven't seen it, but I, I it's like it's like these you know, Chinese special forces and the bad yeah. guys and Navy SEALs, right? It was so this nobody's seen Wolf Warrior 2. Yeah, it's it's so, over the top. Okay, yeah. Wolf Warrior 2 came out in 2017. It's like Rambo. So except you've got like a Chinese Rambo kicking American butt. America's like North Vietnam or the enemy. And at the end of the day, like Chinese Rambo kicks American ass and everybody yells, yay. And we are the complete bad guy. The reason why nobody has seen it is because it was banned from North America. Oh, but really? That's, yeah, you, you can't see it. it was banned from North America. How was it banned? Well, banned or didn't, wasn't shown. I'll just leave it at that. It wasn't shown in North America. And, um, you know, it still made $800 million worldwide, which is like George Clooney money, right? That's big money. So right now, and so, you know, this is what they call soft power. Now you could say, okay, Sean, like, fine. This is, we're talking about, you know, nuclear Armageddon while you're bringing up film course, film theory. This is a, a form of victory. You know, I talk about rule number 10, victory is fungible. One form of victory is that all of our grandkids speak Mandarin as a second language and are sympathetic to Beijing values. And that's what we did to Germany after World War II. By the time the Berlin Wall fell down, all West Germans spoke English. They loved democracy. They loved capitalism. They loved American blue jeans and culture and everything else. I mean, they're Nazi ancestors would be horrified to know that we turn them into Americans. That's a form of victory. It doesn't involve battles, doesn't involve lethality. It just requires strategic patience and cunning, which autocracies have a lot of. Yep, and it's also easier to make decisions. You don't have as many stakeholders yeah. and you can make decisions quicker. You might not get to the right answer for the long term, but you're gonna to get to an answer faster than than yeah. you know, Western Western democracies will. So it's a lot of this highly. The other thing too is just supply chain issues, right? right? Like right. steadily over the years, they became a very cheap labor market, and companies to survive in the course of competition offshored everything to China. Now I think I think the the one thing that the COVID pandemic did that served us well was really put that vulnerability and stark relief for the for the country yeah. and for businesses. So right. I think you'll start to see you know some offshoring not onshoring to be it's unfortunate but um you know the Philippines, Vietnam and things like that but then it's going to tie us even closer to having to defend that in order to defend our way of life against an encroaching China. 
Well, we have to think about this. So like, first of all, our military mindset is too much about like super cool tech toys, mm -hmm. F-35s, aircraft carriers. And the whole point of my book is like, fine, we already have the best military in the world. We don't need more of that. We need more of other things like cyber, like disinformation. Maybe we should start doing the dark arts of disinformation ourselves, like we used to do in the Cold War. Oh, we and we also the Special Activity Center does play. right exactly. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about that. Um, there's pros and cons of doing that, but we should consider it. Right now, it's off the table. And also, our vulnerabilities. It's not like they're gonna. China's not gonna win by invading California. They're gonna win by threatening our supply chains. Right. I mean. Um, and also like this whole Cold War mentality, people look at United States and Russia, United States and China, they too often pundits, scholars, experts in Washington, lawmakers, possibly, they say, oh, it's a neo-Cold War. There's a buzz phrase in, in DC called great power competition. And what that means is we're not gonna start, we're, we're not gonna, we don't care about terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda anymore or insurgents like the Taliban. We care about you know near peer powers and then the new buzzword the new buzzwords come with new ages I suppose but it's like pacing competitors China Russia stuff like that but they keep on viewing it through the lens of the Cold War and that's a blunder because there's so many differences first of all the Cold War was in a pre-internet age pre-email age like that changes bipolar. everything it was bipolar yeah. not tripolar. It was, it was, it was, it was a bipolar universe, right. meaning like if something bad happened, you know who did it. Today, we live in at least a tripolar universe, meaning that you have Russia, America, China, and maybe others, and maybe they're not public sector either. You know, maybe they're like, you know, and then the third is that during the Cold War, we had two distinct economic blocks, the West and the USSR. And as a result, we didn't ever really develop economic warfare, economic destruction. And a legacy is we don't even teach that at a war colleges anymore. I'm a professor at whatever war colleges. It's economic. not taught anywhere. Nope, not taught. Not comprehended, not taught. It's a legacy of the Cold War. Legacy of the Cold War. Meanwhile, we live in a globally intertwined, interdependent you know, global economy which has a lot of opportunities and risks for a cunning strategist. And we have to become cunning strategists in this way. So the book, The New Rules of War, this is just a sampling. It, it really is trying to make this into a three-dimensional thing about how has warfare changed in the last you know, several decades and where do we need to be? And the answer is not like, I don't talk about like, oh, we need a new type of law or we need to, you know, my, it starts with changing the way we think about warfare. It starts with increasing our strategic IQ and realizing that, you know, great strategists, not everybody can be a great strategist, but a great strategist can come from anywhere. So let's stop privileging four-star generals and others. And let's, you know, there are people in the private sector who may be great strategists. I mean, why don't we, why are we not, you know, Right now in the United States, strategists, that class come from senior diplomats or senior like general or admirals who have like 40 years in a bureaucracy, which we know what that can produce, or they're basically political appointees. And 
being in DC and being in this the chum slick of political appointees, you're usually chosen not because you you merit it. You're chosen because you know you drove the vans in Ohio during a swing state election, and now this is your reward. You're in charge of the Middle East. You got the Jared portfolio. You've got you know you know, and you wonder how these blood. It's not just a Republican Democrat thing. It's an everything thing, and so. Um, you know, that's, that's the system we, we have. And, uh, you know, that's, that's our problem. We don't have really, we have people in the country who are, I'm, I'm convinced are strategic geniuses for this moment, but they can't break through, you know, the signal to noise ratio is outrageous. And so we can't hear them. Which is really unfortunate because you just sit back and watch what's happening. And you're just like, yeah, even, even with, even with, Afghanistan. I'll give you an example. Yeah. One of the first questions I had when I heard like that we were withdrawing from Kabul, I was like, "What happened to Bagram? Like Kabul's in the middle of the city. It's highly vulnerable. Like what happened?" And I learned recently. I think there was an interview that um, General H.R. McMaster did with somebody. Uh, I think it was actually on the Joe Rogan podcast, believe it or not. And the issue was, is you had some diplomat saying you could have no more than two thousand to twenty five hundred troops on the ground. Yeah. Well, that wasn't enough to defend Bagram. And it's just like, there's just no strategic logic around that. Additionally, yeah. just on the timeline too. Yeah. You know, it's, the timelines can be flexible. If you do this and you kind of accede to these terms, then we'll withdraw. Yeah. If you don't, we're going to stay there and we'll just push out the deadline. We didn't do that. We just said, I need to be out of here now, like black and white. I, and as a result, you know, it was a disaster. You're absolutely correct. I mean, so this is not many things unify our country these days, but that's one of them. Like the fall of, you know, Kabul was worse than the fall of Saigon. Yeah. And it wasn't a military thing. It was a political debacle. And again, this is right. not Republican or Democrat. Right, exactly. Right? That's it's my just, point is that like, we all agree on this. And it's not about, we, it's about who was in charge. Executive. It wasn't the military either. It, no, it's, you know, look, wars aren't politics at the strategic level. And our system, civilians control the military. That's the system. So it's not fair to blame the military. I mean, you can blame the military for operational, you know, snafus. And there's a lot of that to go around. But this situation um, was, to, to quote a bad old uh, phrase from 10 years ago, a whole of government failure. Um, you know, it... You know, we left Afghanistan the same way we went in, totally low strategic IQ. Right. And I'm on a campaign to raise to raise American strategic IQ. That's my elevator pitch. Well, and the new I, rules of war are all about that. Yeah, not not to pick on the Biden administration, let's pick on the Bush administration, particularly yeah. in Afghanistan. Yes. Right. Like again, reading that reading that book, it was the best way to deal with that was to send troops in, not troops, but you know the. I think it's called. The, uh, I think it's Delta called it. It was the um, Advanced Force Group or something like that. Operations. I'm sure it has a, a cute acronym, but yes, yeah. The, 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 the acronyms they come up with are never cute. They're just completely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's but the, true. But, but the point is, that there's a book by Peter uh, Blaber Blaber. Um, it was mm. a Delta guy, and mm -hmm. his advice was to like, look, we don't even know where these guys are. We don't know mm -hmm. anything about the landscape. Let's just send people in and let's develop the situation yeah. and figure out what we need to do. And then meanwhile, you had politicians like, you know, Rumsfeld and uh, mainly Rumsfeld 
who were just like, no, 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 we need to have results. We need to like have a big right. operation. So they they spent right. all this resource and blood and treasure assaulting like an empty, I don't know if it was an airfield or if it was like a, a village or something like that. <clears throat> and, you know, just so that they could show, and then they also seized an airfield that really wasn't that strategic, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really, <laughs> it just expended a lot of resources right. for media consumption, but it didn't really move the ball forward. Now there were other Didn't achieve the mission. Right, right. There were yeah, subsequent operations that, that did that, but it was all about developing the situation. And Right. Look, I mean, like, Afghanistan, there were actually two wars. We won the first war. We lost the second. The first war was between September of 2001 and December of 2001, mm -hmm. where our special operations and CIA hunted, searched, and destroyed Al-Qaeda. And we had, you know, we were like a hair's breadth away from nabbing bin Laden. Tora Bora, right. Yeah, but we 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 pushed them out. We pushed them out. And they were like non-operational. And it would have been fine if we concluded operations December 31st, 2001. Yep, Taliban's but gone. What like, happened instead in early yeah. December... At the Bonn conference, we decided to change our strategy and inexplicably wanted to make it the 51st state, which is beyond dumb. It was controversial at the time, but you were considered unpatriotic if you raised it. And now we know for a fact it was just stupid. It's sort of like the USSR. When the USSR was founded, people were like, that's a dumb idea. People are not going to give up the private property for communism. Now we have like decades of empirical proof that was a dumb idea. Same with Iraq and, you know, the Afghan wars. And again, that's what my book, New World's War, is trying to, to prevent the future. Like this is, let's stop doing this. And let's let's also fight to win. People, I, talk, I, I give talks across the country and abroad and people just in the West just sort of shrug their shoulders like we're doomed to not never win a war again. And that's wrong. We can win, but we got to fight and think differently. And we got to, the first thing you've got to do is stop digging the hole. Yeah, it's the mission. Right? It's the mission. That's right. And you got to stop doing these, these immaculate assumptions. Like if we just have an election, they will become a democracy. If we just have a free economy, they will become a democracy. If they, if you know, we, whatever. If we disband everybody who can read and write, who's, you know, a, right. a member of the Ba'ath Party, right? Yeah, we, right. I think we didn't, we, we didn't even do the same, did we do the same thing in World War II? I don't think we did. Well, we did the denazification program and a similar program in, um, in Japan. But the difference is this, is that, Japan and Germany, A, were totally fatigued from the wars. Two is that they were functional states to begin with, functional yeah. Westphalian states. And all we had to do is take out the ideologues and put in technocrats and spin up the machine again. And it ran under US supervision. And, you know, and by the way, in both places, we were there for like a long time with a, a lot of people, right? We didn't like just do this you know, we weren't spread thin. We made yeah, sure that- it was that, a RAND study that said in order to control population, you, what, what, one for every 25 people? The, the ratios differ. And it goes back to T. Lawrence with his algebraic 
you know, you know, ratios, but we needed, you know, there's a certain ratio of how many people you need. And this is the thing about Ukraine today that you, you know, some Ukrainians are looking at this and saying, hey, the Russians don't have enough troops to control Ukraine. I mean, 100,000 sounds like a lot, but Ukraine's a big place. So, right. you know, th th that's, that's the point. But we made so many strategic blunders. I mean, you know, you ask like, you know, my initial question is how does a, the world's best military lose against guys in flip-flops and AK-47s? Yeah, the AK worst political class. Next question. Yeah, that, and, and the reason right. is, is that we shoot ourselves in the foot. They didn't, you know, and, and that's, we have to stop doing that. So I'm on a crusade to stop doing that. How did, but the problem is, is though, like, how do you, how do you do that with the same system? Because our system yeah. is custom selected to elect morons. Yeah, no, is. this is a great question. Look, if I had a Harry Potter wand, I'd certainly, I'd, I'd fix this with a, a swish and flick. Um, but, um, you know, the best I can do is to put the issue on the radar and to talk to people. And what I'm finding with this book, which is, you know, being read and it's controversial pro and con is that there's a, there is an intellectual insurgency going on, not just in our country, but in the United Kingdom and Germany, uh, in, in the Singapore and in, in Malaya, Malaysia. I mean, so, what I'm finding is this, is that if you join the military in the 1980s, you are in your sort of conventional war, Cold War mindset, you think this book is very dangerously naive and you don't like it. You think it's, you know, McFate should be crucified. Um, and that, that class of officers are now our three and four stars, okay? Now, if you entered the military after, say, the Berlin Wall fell down after the Cold War, this looks very familiar to you. Right. And you look at what Russia and Iran and China and others are, are, how they're fighting, how they're getting strategic advantage, it looks just like the new rules of war. And, 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 and just to inject another idea, right? It would also look very familiar to the Domenici's of- That's right. Well, that's right. So the other thing you raised, which is great, is that these ideas are not brilliant McFade ideas. I just went back in history and looked at history and said, hey, the war has actually been fought this way the entire time. We have been in this bubble for the last 150 years, going back to 1802, about state and state conflicts, this Clausewitzian paradigm. And for those who don't know, Clausewitz is a, he's a, a Prussian dead general from the 1820s and 30s. He wrote a book called On War, which American war colleges worship like he's the prophet of war and that's the Bible. Yeah, war is continuation of politics by other means, right? What, which everybody, that's not a new thing. I mean, Sun Tzu says the same thing, but he's all about high utility of force. His type of warfare is like World War II, conventional warfare. And there's something to be learned from Clausewitz, but we put them on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And because of the information age, because it's technology, war is now shifted to the, the domain of, you know, can you manipulate other people's perception of reality? Can you do strategic deception? That's how you win strategically. It's not lethality. And that's the world of Sun Tzu, who was writing 2,500 years ago, his which art is, of war. Which is raises a number of terrifying ideas so yeah one of which is let's talk you know we talk about the chinese social credit system 
right? Yeah. Like that's how you can control people. That's right. Leaders that you want. Um, you can talk about, uh, you know, with the democracy, the democratization of like what we're doing right now, right? Uh, you could have used deep fakes to make it look right. like somebody did or to ruin somebody's. And not only, you know, again, this is not just a, a place where you democratize these tools. They're available to people who are outside of nation states. Um, yeah. To your point, and some of these toys that are more expensive are going to be available to uh, corporations, right? You had Elon Musk and uh, uh, Bezos sending people to space. Sure. Right? So, so I, yeah. I mean, so like my vision of the future of war, like where, will, where are we going to be in the middle of the 21st century looks like this. You're going to have big powers still like United States, Russia, China, some others. You know, how powerful they will be, I don't know. Like, I have expert friends in China, and I, they come in two, two breeds. One breed says they're going to take over the world by 1 October 2049. Another breed says, oh, they're going to collapse by 1 October 2049. So take your pick. But um, I think China is going to be there. But I also think, you know, it's not just the world. International relations is no longer state-centric. In fact, it never was, except for the last... 200 300 years and i don't get into deep history of that but you know the world stage now this like it always has been is is it's a crowded stage by states but non-state actors too so the fortune 500 the super rich they have global interests and they will they will find ways to protect them and they are tired from at least from their point of view, like ExxonMobil is tired of being shaken down by corrupt host nation governments. And now that you have mercenaries, you have cyber, you have all these other weird things, they're going to start to use them. And they already are. I mean, when well, you know, ExxonMobil shows up, like an extractive Google, industry is, yeah, Google, know, Google good executed thing. a cyber attack against the Chinese. You know right, that, right, exactly. Right. They, I mean, now granted, the Chinese deserved it. No, of course but... they deserved it. But that, the point is, is that like, DC, bureaucracy, the political class, political scientists, you know, the quote unquote intellectual elite, they still are stuck in the, the 20th century where states rule the world. In the 21st century, states are one of many actors. The super rich can become a superpower especially as mercenaries become much more lethal and sophisticated. So you can now rent private armies and private special operations, these tier one groups that we talked about, you can rent them on the free market. And yeah. so what happens when, you know, when, when uh, Elon Musk does that against, you know, someplace who's taken like Guyana, who may have taken over their you know, his launch site or something, or what happens when a mega church, hires these mercenaries to go after ISIS 2.0 and puts a bounty on their head. I mean, the point is, is that their warfare in international relations is going to become much more diversified and interconnected between public and private spheres in ways that will look more like the Middle Ages and antiquity than the last century. Well, I mean, some of it's already been happening, like Harvey Weinstein, right? They hired yeah. Black Cube. Right. Black Cube, exactly. Of... So privates, we even talked about it's like I used to be in the private intel world too. That's a very potent world. That's a very, very potent world. No, like anything, there's a lot of charlatans in that world, a lot of charlatans in the mercenary world. But the there's a lot of 
potency to. Um, and but we don't think this way in America because we think like, oh, it's, you know, we still think of like, um, you know, a, a 19, we have this illusion of a rules-based order with Washington, D.C. at the center. Now, if you travel to Houston, they'll have a very different perspective because in Houston, they're the, like the energy capital of the world, or at least one of them. I mean, Houston Airport has as many flights, if not more, a day as Dulles Airport or, you know, JFK. They have a very different map that they look at. There are different maps of power in the world, and they don't all involve states. And, and often, if you look at the, you know, there's like 190, 94 states in the world. We always think of the states ruling the world, but only the top 25 mean anything. The rest of them are, you know, they're along for the ride, to say the least. And I think that we have to think about a world where power and the distribution of power is not state-centric. And it's going to change who has power in the world and why. And yes, states like America, United States, you know, China, Russia, they'll have a vote. But so will a lot of others. We're not thinking in terms of that right now. And we should start thinking like that. It'll definitely be interesting to see how this all evolves. Uh, what do you think the U.S. can be doing to... I mean, I'll give you an example. We were talking about... Um, politicians not being sufficiently educated on these these topics. I know that um, like new Congress people who are, are elected, they go through a program. I think the Institute of Politics ran something. At right? Harvard, yeah. They they have a they can voluntarily um, oh so it's not it's not mandatory. It's not mandatory. They can volunteer there's a couple of places. Harvard is one of the big ones. But I don't, I don't think it's mandatory. I could be wrong. I don't think it's mandatory. But yeah, many so of them do. To address some of the, so that's just one example. But yeah, what what can the cognizanti of uh, you know the United States do to to kind of bone up on this topic and figure well, out how to better leverage um, these tools to shape the strategic environment internationally? So we'll talk about the, the Washington political class and whether you're, you know, Congress or you're writing the coattails of, you know, the Bidens or the Trumps or, you know, there's, there's you know, the swamp, as you will, right? Um, the, uh, the deal is this, is that we're, you know, a lot of it's going to come from grassroots pressure. And this is why we have these conversations that a lot of people see these things and believe them. There are people in, you know, I talked about the generational rift about the book and the book's reaction. That is true in Capitol Hill too. And you have a lot of octogenarians who are in charge of this, you know, armed services committees, intelligence committees, foreign relations committees, and they're still viewing things through the lens of the rear view mirror. And that is the danger. And good luck convincing them otherwise. You can try to convince the staff. But I would ask, I would start with asking disruptive questions. Why has it, if we have such a great military, why haven't we won since 45? You know, if we, you know, what, why is deterrence no longer working? Why are we spending all this money on an F-35? on F Like F-35s, the whole program costs $1.7 trillion. The hangar queen, right? Right, which which is more than Russia's GDP on an airplane doesn't go to war. We've been at war for 20 years. No combat missions. What's going on? Asking disruptive questions. I think we have to also ask about the military-industrial complex, right? 
So, you know, great power competition, the new mantra in Washington, which is war against China and, you know, Russia, they imagine as the battle, you know, China, the battle of Midway in the South China Sea with, you know, Ford class carriers, F-35s and drones. It's a Santa's list for Lockheed Martin. They, they, they nuzzle up to Congress. Congress says, DOD, you're going to order more of these, whether you want it or not. DOD sometimes says we don't, but they have to do it. And so what happens is that we have what they call means-driven strategy. We have to fight with you know, what we got, not what we need. You know, we've got a lot of F-35s, we're going to have to use them somehow. But don't lose anyone because it's a symbol of American might. So we have all sorts of problems. But um, um, I would start asking about can, can, what does victory look like in the 21st century? How do we achieve it? And what victory looks like in the 21st century is not on a battlefield. It's not in the South China Sea or in the plains of Ukraine. That's all operational art stuff, mm -hmm. sub-strategic. Victory now is hegemonic, like it was in some ways during the Cold War, but we, have to, we can't go too far with that analogy. So you want to be the world's hegemon. Like America, that means you're king of the hill. And China has, it wants to be hegemon. It has a different vision. Like if they ruled planet Earth, it would look different. Russia, if they ruled planet Earth, it would look different. So think of hegemony this way. And that's what Putin is testing in Ukraine right now. How much is America willing to really be world hegemon? If I put the squeeze on this non-NATO neighbor, Will America come to the rescue as a hegemon should, or are they going to bail? Because that will that would have implications for not just NATO, but for like Taiwan and other places, the Philippines, Vietnam. So think of hegemony this way. And this is what we're fighting for. Hegemony is like a casino. It's very expensive to build a casino and to operate it, right? And then once you build it, you invite all the other nation states in the world. Like I said, 190, 94 of them. And, you know, so they come and they gamble. And, you know, some do really well. And some are horrible at gambling. But at the end of the day, we know who always does well, right? The house wins. And that's the privilege of hegemony. If you're the only casino in town you're making a lot of money. Especially when then you we, control the chips. I, that's right. You control everything. So people are going to win. Yeah. People are going to lose. But at the end of the day, you're on average going to win. Now we look across the street, we see a, a Chinese casino going up and a Russian casino going up. And some of our people are leaving. Some of our states are leaving to gamble and they're not coming back. And then like, we're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And they, with, when what Russia and China wanted to do, they wanted to, they don't want to, to nuke our casino. They just want us to go out of business and become shabby. Like the United Kingdom is today, right? United Kingdom used to be a superpower. Now, what is it? Second class power, maybe at best, kind of a, you know. So that is the vision of Putin and Xi and others. They don't want to. They want. They don't want to destroy us with tanks and missiles, and they just want us to be to like deflate. And they're going to use things like disinformation to pit us against each other, blue versus red. So we go at our own jugular. And but we don't think of war this way. And you know the problem is is that strategically 
They are waging war, but disguising it as peace. And if you could do that, like I said, you're halfway to winning. And that's what they're doing. All right, my friend. I think uh, we covered a lot of ground and I greatly appreciate this time. And, you know, if people were to, you know, were to f- try to find you on social media, where would they go? And then what, what sorts of, you're also, you're also a fiction writer as well. Yeah. So let's, let's, you know, kind of, where can they find you first? Like internet sites, et cetera. And then just a quick blurb about the books you have out that people should check out. So, yeah, so I, um, you can find me on my website, you know, www.seanmcfate.com. That's S-E-A-N, McFate, M-C-F-A-T-E. And um, you can find me books on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or any place that sells books, Kindle or Audible. Um, I write fiction and nonfiction. So my nonfiction, like The New Rules of War, uh, was an economist best book of the year in 2019. It's it's been read widely, written to be read, not a dry academic tone. But I also write fiction because I think fiction is a a great way to tell the future of war, um, in in ways that nonfiction can't. So I have this trilogy of the Tom Locke novel series, uh, starting with Shadow War. You can use our last book. It's called High Treason, which you don't have to read the other two books. Um, you know, um, you know, Patterson said it was, you know, the best, better than Tom Clancy in terms of fiction. Yeah, James, I don't know James him Patterson, either. James, James, James Patterson. Yeah. James Patterson, so. I was a big solid. I didn't, I don't know. He read that on a, on a plane someplace and, uh, I didn't ask for that. So it's, um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, high treason's a lot of fun. Check it out. It's a, it's a great novel. Um, and you know, I, I contribute in, in all the normal, uh, foreign affairs places too, for those of you who want to geek out but um i'm based in washington dc and and sean it's it's so great to see you it's it's been a long time since we we hung out and drunk beers at uh i don't know what was it the red line bar or something in cambridge i, I forget I, can't I know the last time we saw each other in person i think i i uh was still at morgan stanley so i think you you, you came you were oh that's right yeah you came out was the show, yeah. on the floor i was there for a boring conference you were my savior <laughs> <laughs> It was it was a pleasure, and thank you for uh, taking taking a risk on this uh, this risky venture. That I, like, oh yeah, well, I'm all about risks. Uh, well, Sean, thanks. It was a pleasure. Anytime, it'd be great to come back. All right, thanks, Sean. Yeah. Thank you.